I think for men, that effort of trying to be in control all the time can be exhausting. Sometimes I look at men in really powerful positions in industry and I, and I kind of feel sorry for them because I can see their struggles to live up to this kind of facade of, of being the top guy in whatever it is they're doing. Having all the answers. Yeah. So by, by being forced to face something like Parkinson's head on, you arrive at a certain level of acceptance uh, and that's actually very liberating. Hi everyone and welcome back to HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing where we try and get under the bonnet a bit more on the work of HSE Health and Wellbeing. My name is Fergal Fox and today I'm talking to Dr. Noel Richardson, Director of the National Centre for Men's Health in Southeast Technological University. Noel has been working with us in the HSE on a part-time basis for many years in the area of men's health. You're very welcome Noel. Good morning Fergal. So Noel, um, I know you divide your time between lecturing in, in the college and, and working with us on men's health. And I want to get straight into kind of getting into the bit of the nuts and bolts of men's health. And the word masculinity kind of pops up nearly as soon as we talk about men's health. Can you give me a bit of insight into why that is? Yeah, I guess the, the starting point when we approach the subject is, and it's something we, we address on an engaged national men's health programme, it's why men's health. And when you look at that initially, you look at the statistics and you see that men die younger than women on average and have higher death rates for most of the leading cause of death and at all ages. So that's the kind of macro picture, if you like. So the next question then is, is what's underpinning those statistics? Why do men die younger than women? Why have they higher mortality rates across the lifespan? And certainly masculinity is one element of that. And I think if you're to define masculinity simply, it's it's our attitude and approach to life and how it's informed by values and, you know, messages we pick up as, as boys or girls from, from a very early, early age. And the context of health, there's a whole big literature at this stage on how masculinity shapes men's health practices. For example, men are more likely to take risks with their health, reluctant to go to the doctor when they're in the need to they engage in higher levels of kind of health damaging behaviors like smoking, binge drinking and so on. So now it would be easy to, to blame men by, by, by listing out those things, but we need to understand how health practices are, if you like, mechanisms for demonstrating masculinity. So if we take, say, boys at a young age, like binge drinking becomes almost a badge of honor. You know, it's, it's a rite of passage for boys to make the transition into being a man. At least that's the perception. So the, the types of behaviors we, we as in like men and young men think that they're, they should be engaging in are sometimes like they're, they're the rite of passage, you say, or it's, it's part of forming their identity. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and they're, but they're health damaging often. Well, they are, you know, it's, it's the expect, expect, it's meeting certain expectations of what it is to be a man. And that, that varies with different contexts and different cultures. For example, the code of behavior that's expected of traveler men might be very different to men in settled communities, or the code of behavior expected of at different ages can, can shift. I mentioned boys earlier. Very often for boys and young men, there's an expectation to conform to narrow sets of behaviors that are indicative of a certain way of manliness or macho kind of culture, whereas as men get older, that often can change. You know, fatherhood, for example, can often be a catalyst for men to reframe everything. Everything, you know, <laughs> that's true. You know, 
and the things I remember interviewing a man in very early days of this work, and he, he talked about when he was in college and waking up the next morning, having driven home, and, and you know, and, and being absolutely really drunk. But now, speaking as he was then to me as a father of two young boys, he was just horrified that he would have engaged in that kind of behaviour. And there's no way he would have done that now, you know, because of the responsibility he felt to his boys. So yeah. masculinity isn't set in stone. It's 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 something that we're constantly kind of negotiating with in the context of prevailing cultural norms. And it shifts and changes over time, thankfully. Thankfully, because we're, we're, we want to shift it a bit more in a more healthy masculinity vibe. I suppose, and that's a really direction. good point, Fergal, because yeah. we, we tend to think of masculine. there's a lot said about toxic masculinity and about negative aspects of masculinity, but there are also very positive ways of being a man. I mentioned with fatherhood, there's a whole literature around how fatherhood shapes positive ways of being a man, men get, being connected with caring and nurturing others uh, and being responsible in a, in a much more kind of gentle way rather than trying to be conforming to narrow sets of expectations yeah, I, to be a man. I think that's interesting what you say about fathers. I, I think there's something that that's often unsaid as well about men getting into relationships, like a serious relationship. Somebody once told me that, and they were working with young men in care, and they said, like, one of the big changes of this they could see is when a young man, like, obviously, if it's, some of these children were in care because of their behavior, uh, like antisocial behavior, and it was an important relationship, be it, you know, with the with a new boy or a new girl. Yeah. Like that kind of, that new romance, that was changing their perspective on their, like their damaging socially, anti-social behaviours. Absolutely. You know, so I thought that's, oh my God, so that's, that's a huge shift for somebody. And then when you think, like, <laughs> like all these kind of big macho men, like confining to the, that code of behaviour that you named. Yeah. In that young men's space. If they're going to get into a serious relationship, they have to show vulnerability to somebody. Absolutely, yeah, and 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 they they see the benefits of it as well in, in their in their own lives, um, and we see this also in relation to men who've experienced kind of serious ill health. Very often, they they go full circle. You know, they, they become really strong advocates for other men, yeah, not not to fall into the same trap. We see this especially in relation to mental health. I mean, we've seen a huge change in, in attitudes to mental health, I think, in the last kind of 10 years in relation to men and mental health. You know, we've seen major uh, shifts in, in, say, sporting figures or figures from There's nearly there's, there's male influencers in loads of spheres. There is. Putting, putting and, a, and they're, a voice cha- they're challenging this kind of traditional stigma and taboo around mental health for men. Yeah. And encouraging other men to be more proactive, to not to be afraid to seek help to change the culture in workplaces and other environments where boys and men congregate to make it more supportive to boys and men to, to be able to access support. So this is a really positive shift in masculinity as well. So, I mean, I, I, I say that just so that we don't fall into the, a rabbit hole of talking about masculinity. I mean, there are certainly I, 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 I very negative aspects of masculinity that we need to acknowledge and still yeah. need to work on. But we also need to look at models of good practice and where if like healthy masculinities are being reformulated and learn from that in other spheres as well. Emphasize the positive and, and build on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I, I agree with you to a large degree that there's been a huge kind of evolving of that, you know, different codes of behavior and acceptable and that, you know, we're seeing way more representations of healthy masculinity 
sometimes I think that men kind of they kind of follow the lines of one code of behavior in their around their masculinity in one setting, and then they go into a different setting and they'll they'll play by a different set of rules. Exactly, and, yeah. and they're like they, they seem to be kind of still. Their hands are bound, depending on the settings that they're in, or their own kind of psychological hang-ups around. And that's, that's a really good example because it, it all comes down to certain different codes of behaviour in different settings. You know, if you're in a maybe a sports club or something, and you're an eighteen-year-old man, I mean, the expectation is that you're tough and that you, yeah. you know, give as good as you get, and you know, you, you don't sort of lie down and and cry if you get a belt. You know, so that there's there's a clear expectation there to to conform to a fairly narrow set of behaviors that are indicative of masculinity in that setting. But take take a different setting then, in a more social setting, that, that could be very different. And what you said there about the dads, about the world changing, I, I, like, I absolutely agree with that. I, and I think I suppose one of the big things, and I think you named it already, that risk-taking behavior, mm. because you're not just responsible. For yourself. No, like you, you're responsible whole, for others. Uh, absolutely, you know, and, yeah. and your sphere of responsibility is expanded enormously and yeah. then, and all of a sudden like you 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 can feel quite vulnerable there you feel like you know the, the a, way, a different weight on your shoulders and that is actually pulling you back from the risk. It's interesting the point about fatherhood because when we developed the national mental health policy way back that was one of the issues that came up really strongly actually and the literature really supports it as well you know the more engaged men are as, in, as fathers the more likely they are to be supportive of gender equality and you know, if, if the more they nurture and care for others, the more they care and nurture themselves. So it's it's a really important aspect of men's health, I think. Even though it's, it was, when we went into developing that policy, we, we saw something more on the periphery, but it emerged as something that was right at the centre of men's health, really. Well, absolutely, yeah, that's interesting. Can I bring it into some of the, the programmes of work that's been developed? You mentioned the Engage training programme there about how you kind of, you bring this training program to people around uh, men's health, trying to get them, other agencies and people working in the health and yeah. social care area to be able to engage <clears throat> men better or more accessibly. So what's the Engage program do? Well, the Engage program, it's a key capacity building measure as part of the National Men's Health Policy and Action Plan. So what we're trying to do is work, it's based on a train the trainer model, so we train up trainers to go out and deliver the program with mentorship from from a few key staff within the HSC. So the idea of Engage program is to build skills and competencies for service providers to engage more effectively with men. And then more broadly, it's to look at how the organizations in which we work at work in are, are, are not male friendly, if you like. So if you take a GP practice, for example, you know, it could be that the waiting room isn't very welcoming for men. There could be posters up that are all to do with women's health, for example. So that environment may not be more that welcoming to men. That's just one example now. So, And then we also need to look at the people working in that environment and see how what skills can they develop that will make them more effective at engaging men. So the engaged training that you're describing there, Noel, is available across the country now. Yeah, last year, Fergal, we developed a Train the Trainer program for health and wellbeing staff within the HSE. And we had about, I think it was 22 staff in that program. So they are now ready to go out. And so that's started already, in fact, to deliver training to different service providers, both within the HSE and beyond. 
So if anybody wants to contact or find out more about that, they can contact their local Health Promotion Improvement Office. They can look at the Engage website. Oh, great, yeah. More details of the programme there. So um, you mentioned that that some of the the learning or the kind of the Engage journey has, has taught you a lot of things about engaging men. And I know that in recent years you brought that to the agricultural field, if you like, to burden the pun. But so we started with the generic program, Fergal, about ten or twelve years ago, and then over time we developed new modules in engaging young men and middle-aged men. And the mo- most recent newer module we've developed is called On Firm Ground, and it's working with the Department of Agriculture to support agricultural advisors to, to have basic skills to support farmers' health. And what we, what we discovered was that agricultural advisors on a daily basis were meeting farmers in different degrees of dis- distress. And and the, the department was coming looking for this help, or the, uh, the agricultural advisors were? Exactly, exa- exactly. They were, and they were being really proactive on the subject, right? Um, which is interesting in itself. So they're going into farmyards, helping farmers do their business or give them well, advice? Essentially, yeah, advice about agricultural matters. But right. they're, they're dealing with the person at the end of the day. Yeah. And they have a very strong relationship generally with farmers built up over many years. There's there's quite a special or unique bond there, I think, between the ag advisor and the farmer. Um, but they were noticing certain farmers in distress, but they didn't really know what to say or whether they should refer them to supports or services locally. So the idea of unfirm ground is, is to is to bridge that gap and to to give the ag advisors the some basic tools and skills to know what to say to farmers in distress and to signpost them to available services and supports locally. So it's a really good example, I think, of for, for other sectors potentially to follow suit in the, in the future. That signposting role is so important because very often, the, you know, the services and supports are there, but it's getting men who are vulnerable to actually take that first step and to you know, to, to go and look for support, that, that's that's the real issue, a real challenge. I'm, I'm reminded of that um, phrase that Jigsaw, or the, around mental health, used to use around, or they still use around one one, one good adult, adult, or they haven't that trusted person that you can exactly. talk to. And, and, and in this case, I, I can't think of anybody better than the Ag Advisor. Yeah, it's interesting. And Ag Advisors came to us and said, we're, we're not health professionals, but they, they don't need to be health professionals. You know, it's just to say, look, are you okay? It's normal to feel this way. Um, would you consider going to see your GP or so trying to integrate a little brief intervention exactly into their role and 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 that's the role that they're arriving into the farmyards. There's no health service staff arriving into the farmyards, yeah. and we're we're really keen to point out that we're not trying to make health, health professionals, professionals out of them. Yeah, and did you find they were a bit anxious about getting that train and that you know there'd be too much expected? The, of them? the response has been really positive, Fergal. Right, really, really positive. I think the, the the consensus was that they feel much better about having some basic skills and, and, and you know, being able to do something about it than being caught in this limbo where they're not sure what to say. So they have a basic toolkit that when it, when something comes up, they feel like I can dip into this or I have a base to, to you know, to signpost, as you said. Exactly, exactly. That, that's, that's the key ask of them in this program. That's great. It's great that the Department of Agriculture are literally buying into this program they are, and and they're not. They're keen for, for not just kind of quick fix to a problem. They're, they're looking at the issue in the longer term. And interesting enough, when, when we developed the national men's health policy many years ago, the Department of Agriculture were asking, "Well, what has this got to do with us?" You know, they were looking at health and safety of farmers, for example, but they didn't really see a link to men's health. But I think what what this shows is they're they're 
their approach to firm ground is that they're being much more proactive now and they're keen to look at the culture in which farmers, you know, are, are operating and trying to make the culture more amenable to farmers looking after their health. So that going back to that masculinity point of uh, being a code of behaviour, that they're literally changing the code yeah. around self-care, self-help. Support farmers to, to look for help. Yeah, which but, fits but, into but, their but, health. But help-seeking is only half of the issue. The other half is that we have people in, in who are placed to offer help at the times when farmers need it. That's a crucial. So it's about help-seeking and help-giving. Okay. So you're trying to promote improved help-seeking but you're, not, you're also trying to upskill those that are at the coalface and who may be able to offer some form of help or support without, again, making health professionals out of them. Yeah, so using the ag- agricultural advisors as a bridge to more exactly. in-depth health services or health advice. Exactly, but that, that doesn't come, come about without a change of culture within the sector. And I think that's what we've seen in the Department of Agriculture. And that's why they're, I think they're... I feel like a model of good practice for other sectors to follow suit, potentially in the future. Staying with farmers, 2022 also saw the launch of Farmers Have Hearts, which is, you know, a very significant program, loads of partners. Can you give us the the highlights out of that in terms of like what, like we're targeting cardiovascular health of farmers? Exactly. It's a very different type of of program. So it started out as a a simple screening program conducted by the Irish Health Foundation, mainly in March settings, you know, where farmers congregate. And we learned a lot from that program. But one of the key learnings was that whilst the, the health check was a catalyst for farmers to take stock and, you know, maybe go to their GP and do something further, they, they definitely needed something more to support them to make more sustainable change in the future. So what the, cardiova- the Farmers of Hearts cardiova- Cardiovascular Health Program did was it provided a health screening at baseline and then offered a choice of interventions that farmers could link into. And these were simple interventions like text messaging, a health coach, or a combination of text messaging and health coaching. And that, that went on for about six months after the baseline health check. And we followed up 12 months later and did the follow-up health check to see how things had improved. And, and to, basically there were some really positive findings from the study. So the health coach, I, I, <clears throat> that's somebody literally giving somebody a phone call? or Yeah, it was a phone call once every two weeks. And kind of encouraging them around their behavior change? It was basically or? applying kind of a brief intervention to the farmers on the phone. So the farmers set the, set the, set the agenda, really. So they, they decided what kind of aspects of lifestyle they were interested in changing. And the health coach worked with them to support them. To yeah, I think changes. that's great because they weren't just left off. You know, exactly. That's, and yeah. we all need a prompt or a nudge and kind Absolute, of follow up. You know what I mean? If you left yeah. our own devices, things kind of wane a bit. But anyway, it's got a long story short, like cardiovascular risk reduced significantly in the intervention group compared to the control group. So we're looking at trying to see if we can scale up that program now in the future. Um, I was looking at the, the report there that, you know, the cardiovascular disease, it's one of the most, second most common cause of death in Ireland more prevalent in men and that's 74% of the farmers that you tested in that had four or more risk factors. So it's a very big issue with the sector. It really is. And the other point about that is we talk a lot in the HSE about targeting those who are hard to reach or more at risk. So this is a good example of an initiative that, that worked with the relevant partners 
to engage with the court that mightn't otherwise have engaged in their health. You know, farmers are a high-risk group, not just for, for cardiovascular health, but for other things as well. So it's really welcome that the programme managed to engage a group that otherwise might have kind of slipped through the cracks and we wouldn't have got to it at all. You know? and, and the other thing that I think applies across men's health, 84% of the men thought their health was very good. You know, so we're, we're, are we all in a bit of <laughs> a state of denial about our... There's, there's an element of that. I think there's an element of the glass being half full for a lot of men. Yeah. And it's not until they reach, you know, a certain threshold of ill health that they start to take stock of their health. You know what I mean? Very often it takes uh, like a heart attack or something fairly... Incidents and accidents. Yeah, for for, farmer, for men to, to kind of yeah. wake up to the fact that maybe their their lifestyle hasn't been so conducive to good health all along, you know? Okay, that's very interesting. So, Noel, 2022 also saw the completion of a review of the last HSE Healthy Ireland Men Action Plan. Um, and what would you see as the kind of the the big wins out of that? Uh, or, you know, to, to kind of set us out for the future again? Yeah, well, I mean, it's really important that we take stock every five years and see what things have worked well and where the opportunities are to do things better. So I think the things that have worked well have been the Engage programme, and that capacity building measure is a key, continuing to upskill our staff in the HSE and beyond to be more in tune with the needs of men and men's health. So that, that's, that's a, that's a fundamental. And that's why the, the continued focus on engaging men you know, with the new health and wellbeing staff in the HSE is so important as well. Um, I think there have been other programmes that have been really effective. We've talked about the Farmers of Heart Cards Cardiovascular Health Programme. We've talked about on firm ground. Other programs like Men in the Move and Sheds for Life have also demonstrated really good effectiveness with evaluation. So, so men, men on the Move again is it's targeting men that are overweight or obese. Overweight or obese, are, and have typically been inactive over recent months or years. So it's not going after the those that are, are already yeah. in gyms and sports clubs. It's trying to target those that are more sedentary and maybe carrying extra weight. And the local sports partnerships have taken a massive role in the rollout of this. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a simple physical activity program combined with some health education sessions as well. And it's built around kind of the camaraderie of a group. You know, there's there's, a, there's very often a, a couched kind of 5K focus on it as well. You know, where there might be, the men might agree to do a, an event at the end of the 10-week program. So it's, but it's focused, it's not competitive, it's focused on fun and enjoyment. And what we've seen in the earlier iterations of the programme is that even when the 10-week programme finishes, the men are very keen to continue it, you know, through the, through their own efforts as well. So that's a really positive. Yeah, I think that was a finding that jumped out to me from the, the researcher was about the the social dividend that these men felt they got. You know, they're, they're not in an organised group activity. Well, you, know, you know yourself, Fergal. I mean, unless you, you're enjoying what you're doing, you're not yeah. going to stick with it in the long term. I mean, if it feels like hardship or something that you've got to endure to get to medium-term goal, that might work in the short term, but it's never likely to sustain in the future. So that's why the fun and the enjoyment and the, the camaraderie of the group is so important. Uh, and what we see as well is that all men get on, if a man doesn't turn up one week, one of his buddies will will phone him up to make sure he's there the next week. Oh, very good, another health coach. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. But again, this is human nature, you know. Yeah, we yeah. all we all suffer from lack of motivation at times. So, but but so by having those inbuilt kind of support mechanisms, it, it helps to keep men on track and 
and you know it's all right to fall for the fall off every now and again, but, but it's it's also good to get back up and yeah, 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 and it's, again. and it's great to get that you know phone call from somebody saying I'd like to you know it'd be great if you could be back with us and, and we all like know. to be missed you know? exactly that's what I'm trying to say exactly we all want to be back and the other program you mentioned there was uh, Sheds for Life this is in the with the Irishman Sheds Association yeah you know when I started working with the Irishman Sheds Association I thought that men's sheds is a health promoting environment you know it seems to be like a natural exactly healthy setting yeah and that's why with, with Sheds for Life we were really keen not to Mess up what was already working really well, so the shed is a is a natural health enhancing environment for for men who, who take part, you know, through the social interaction, the again the camaraderie, the fun, the breaking isolation for for many men. So the the shed is inherently health promoting. So what sheds for life tries to do is to build on that premise right. by offering different elements of program, and it's up to the men in the sheds to decide what elements of the program they buy into. There's generally a health check and a physical activity component that most sheds do, but then there's a menu of options as well that shedders can opt into. So nothing is being forced upon them. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Their, yeah. their autonomy in terms of what they want to have in the sheds. I was impressed with the, respected. with the buy-in to the healthy eating. I, I didn't think healthy eating would be, you know, most of the groups wanted to get that healthy eating and appreciated yeah. the hands-on. Like, I think it was healthy, healthy food made easy. Was the and I think that, that, that was the, the, that was the nuts and bolts of that. Like, the, the fact that they were getting practical skills. Yeah. That they really loved. And it's also the fun of, of cooking as well as, really, you shouldn't underestimate that. Another program, the Larkin Centre, had a healthy food, or kind of healthy eating component as well. And I visited that program a few times and the fun the men had in the kitchen this is in Ballybock in Dublin. You know, it was just a joy to to witness. Do you know what I mean? It's nearly like we're, you're 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 breaking down that masculinity code of behaviour. You're you're working on the margins, pushing men into that cooking no, role together. Point. It's a good and point. Sometimes we 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 impose yeah some, some kind of rigid labels on, on on men or on different groups of men that may or may not be borne out in practice. And by offering an opportunity to challenge those behaviours or those norms, very often men embrace them with open arms do you know what I mean yeah and joy is the result yeah, you just see the men with that program in Ballybock the, the men's health and well-being program um, it was aligned with Celtic Football Club so the f- soccer was seen as the big hook to get men in and it was really popular you know really, the men really did enjoy it but I would say the cookery classes were stole the show in that program that's where they really had fun and enjoyment and took practical skills away from the program to use forevermore afterwards, you know. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned the word there that keeps coming up when we've done the men's health webinars is the, the you know, when we're trying to kind of encourage all other agencies to work with men and target men is the the hook that you might need to create. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the word, you know, that, that, that terminology and, and thinking about what men might just like, it's nearly giving them an accessible way in sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, it can be giving them permission. You exactly, know I mean? yeah. Isn't it ridiculous, like in uh, some but, ways? Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's perfectly I mean, understandable. It's also like, nice to feel that your opinion is being sought and that your what you want is respected. You know, very often I think service providers think they might have a hook, but it may, may not be what men see it as being what they want. You know what I mean? Yeah. So a simple message there is to ask men what they want. Like like in the sheds, the Irishmen Shed Association didn't ram any program down the men's necks. You know, they went in. They said, "Here's a menu of options." You know, this is these the, all these things are available. What would you like? 
So the men choose themselves. So the the, the hook is whatever they choose. You know what I mean? Absolutely, so, yeah. I'm I'm thinking about the the variety of allies that you had had kind of working around that. I, I attended a couple of those working groups with with the Irishmen Sheds Association around the Sheds for Life, and there was like such a wide myriad of partners there. Yeah. Um, from Mental Health Ireland, uh, uh, the Dental Health Foundation, um, uh, like there was just so many. Keep Ireland walking. Yeah, like there was so many inputs or opportunities. Yeah, and then that that partnership model has, has has been a cornerstone of a lot of the work we've done, which I think is really important. Bringing in different partners to deliver different elements of the program, and that partnership working can sometimes be challenging. But I think when you walk through those challenges you know, you really build a more sustainable program that's going to survive into the future, I think. And the other element of the partnership, I think, is that's really worked well has been the partnership between the HSC, NGOs who come in to deliver certain elements of programs and research, you know, to, to evaluate what's working well and how, what, we can, what we can learn from these programs because that's a really key as well, I think. Well, I, would, that, I would say that as a researcher, of course. <laughs> you would say that, but, but you, you have been... At the front line of doing the men's health research and leading the, the men's health research over the last few years as part of our both men's health policy and Healthy Ireland Men Action Plan. So I know I absolutely take your point that and but like it's great to have our programs be able to stand up then with have evidence to kind of pop absolutely, them up internationally. Up or, credibility. Yeah. But I also think we've learned over the years as well about how we take those research findings and find a way to communicate them that that has most impact. At, at the coal face. So the, the development of training, toolkits, you know, other knowledge translation type resources that are going to support practitioners on the ground. That's been a key success, I think, of a lot of the research we've done. And it works well for both practitioners on the ground and the students who are doing that research because it's important for them to, to learn how research findings can be most effective through knowledge translation activities that I mentioned. Absolutely. I'd like to bring you back to, to one of the things that we've been doing for a good few years now, Men's Health Week, and you've been taking a a key role in this, been an advocate for men's health, but the, bringing the kind of the evidence. How have you seen men's health evolve over the years? That's been a fascinating project and huge credit goes to Colin Fowler in the Men's Health Forum in Ireland who kind of coordinates the partnership for this but I remember kind of 10 or 12 years ago, there was there might have been one or two initiatives that happened in Men's Health Week. But now we've seen it become much more mainstreamed. I think there are about 80 or 90 partners now who actively support Men's Health Week. And preparation for the week, it happens in June every year. Third week in June ends with Father's Day. But preparations for this year already began back in November. So Colin convenes the, the partnership group a theme is agreed and then there's a series of actions and initiatives planned um, both at a national and, and a local level with the support of the HSC, it should be said as well. So it's it's turned into something that was a kind of more tokenistic, let's organise an event for Men's Health Week, to something that's now firmly in the calendar at a national and local level. We see lots of organisations running events, say in their own workplace or in their own community setting. So men's health has become much more mainstreamed. 
It's become a big one for workplaces, hasn't it? Like, there's so many workplaces now want to offer something in relation to health and well-being. We've got a big male workforce, and they they think, well, we'll do something at the very least. We can do something to men's health week. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it reflects a kind of a mind change as well, uh, more, more awareness about men's health, and more willingness and keenness on the part of workplaces and others to be proactively involved in this. You mentioned the men's health policy, the original men's health policy that was published in 2008 or 2009, was it? January 2009, actually. January 09, you remember it well. But that was the first men's health policy in the world. Ireland was a, like a world leader. It was, yeah. We should take a bit of a bow in relation to that. And a lot of credit goes to Biddy O'Neill, who, who got the ball rolling many years earlier in, in what was the Southeastern, what was the Southeast Health Board? Yes. <laughs> so many different <laughs> iterations it, it now. It feels like a long time ago now. But Biddy was really proactive in, in, in the area. She, she had a working group that, that had different events on that, and, and she got the funding to support the research that eventually informed the policy. So a lot of credit goes to Biddy O'Neill and, and, and that Southeastern Health Board Men's Health Group who got the ball rolling back then. But I mean, Australia followed shortly afterwards, but, but I think it was kind of pioneering work. And I think it also stands the test of time very well because it, we mentioned gender transformative earlier. It wasn't kind of, it wasn't that rights-based approach to men's health. It wasn't saying that women's health is X, so men's health should have Y. It was very much reflecting on how can we support men to be more proactive and responsible for their own health and looking at un dismantling kind of restrictive or more negative gender norms that prevented men from taking ownership of their own health. Yeah, and and it pronounced that that you know, rereading it again recently. I, I the health the term healthy masculinity jumped out to me as something that we really need to build on. Yeah, in the next plan, something that we can use. But I think it's a lot of clear message that that promoting men's health is good, not just for men's health, but for women and children as well. Yeah, by getting men to be more responsible and proactive, really, for their own health. Because I suppose traditionally, health was women's business. You know, women were the carers and nurturers. I'm going back now a long way, obviously. And things have changed, but but I think we continue we continue to need to encourage men to, to, from an early age, starting with boys, to be aware of those kind of restrictive or negative masculinities, and to 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 see health as something that that's really important for them to be to take ownership of from an early stage. So in the very recent years, women's health now has shot up the political agenda as a priority, mm -hmm. and men's health is maybe not getting that the airtime that, that it used to. But, but what do you think of highlighting the point that you just said, like all these, you know, the interrelationships and the mutual dependence on men and women's health for each other? Yeah, and, and, and by, by promoting both, we're, we're supporting gender equality more, more broadly, I think. You know, I, I think we need to be careful about, about comparing and saying, you know, looking at kind of men's health versus women's health. I think that, that leads us down a kind of rabbit hole that doesn't take us anywhere, really. I think we need to continue to focus on men's and women's health and gender and health. Right. Understanding, you know, if you look at issues of women's health, like violence against women, for example, and issues to do with reproductive health, um, very often g gender in, in, in the wider sense is an issue with those issues that affect women's health. If you look at, say, power relations within gendered structures and gendered systems of health services. Do you know what I mean? We, in order to change that, we need to tackle 
tackle it from a gender perspective. So to be gender aware and to take a gender analysis to, to all the work we're doing. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, we've worked in the past with women's health as well, so it's not like we're out to carve out our own little niche area. Yeah. We're trying to do what's promote men's health in a way that's supportive of men's, women's and children's health. Yeah, I, I, I think, and I'd second the point that you made there about, you know, I don't think it's changed enough is that, that you know, that men's health sometimes has fallen back on, on too many women. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think there's still that is, a, is a st- still a big issue that, you know, that uh, women sometimes are too often the primary carers in the home and then looking, you know, you mentioned when when that middle-aged man or that older man has an incident or accident or something happens that he goes, oh my God, my own health, I need to yeah. think about this. And the woman will have to nudge him into action or I know. be an ally or supporter where, you know, maybe that shouldn't be the case. I think we need to keep working it from an early age. And, you know, that's why SPHE programs, for example, in schools are so important for boys to, you know, to, to prevent us falling into that trap of, oh, health is women's business or that's kind of sissy stuff. Yeah. I mean, that day hopefully is is nearly gone. But I think, and we see other examples of this where boys are are taking more care of their appearance now. Do you mean there's an emphasis on, maybe, maybe that, that could be seen as a, maybe a negative thing as well, perhaps. The beauty are pulling them into fitness. <laughs> yeah, and muscularity and all that kind of thing. But if you could even leverage that as a way for, boys and young men to be more practical with the health more generally, I think that might be useful. Okay. And um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was your own health. You know, I heard the, yeah. the interview that you did with Ray Darcy back in, I think it was the middle of 2021, about your own Parkinson's diagnosis and the journey yeah. of like you working on men's health and then kind of been faced as a man with... <laughs> no, I became my own case study for you. Well, yeah, it was a biggie. Like, you know, so so that that your diagnosis came a good few years ago. 12 years ago now this January yeah so like all this advice about proactive and engaging like uh, uh, like that must have been a jolt well it obviously was a jolt yeah that was one of the, it was a challenge being diagnosed with Parkinson's but my own reaction to it for the first year was also a big challenge because all the things I was asking other men to do I found very difficult to do myself but with the benefit of time now I'm, I, I'm not I wouldn't be too hard on myself in relation to that. I mean, it, w- it was a major jolt. It was diagnosed at 46. Yeah, that's very young. Yeah, it is, yeah. So, and, and you know, it's, it's a massive transition to make. So, looking back now in hindsight, my reaction was quite under... Um, I mean, it's it's almost like a, a grieving response. You know, you've got denial, you've got anger, you've got fear of, you know, what's the future going to hold? So, it's very difficult to be rational and to and to do all the things you're supposed to do when you're in that situation and the way that taught me a really important lesson and we touched on it earlier this notion about help seeking and and you know i think it's a really important message for men to get the the idea that they should ask for help if they're in distress but it's it's so important that we make that as easy as possible for them to do by having people who are able to provide assistance who are readily available and accessible because it's so easy to tell men, oh, you know, if you're feeling down or whatever, ask for help. But it's not until you're in that situation where you're really distressed that that the challenge of doing that can can sometimes be almost too much. To Absolutely, I think that's a very strong message in itself. Going, you know, I've I've faced the fear and I realize 
you know, this took me a year to get my head yeah, around, was, two years to get my head I was blessed with supports around me with yeah. know, family and colleagues and friends. And I still struggled hugely. And, and it's not, there's still ongoing struggles as well, it should be said. Yeah. So it, that was a real eye-opener for me that despite having all these supports around me, I still struggled to ask, to, to, to avail of them. You yeah. I mean? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, uh, over time that changed, thankfully. And I mean, I, I feel really well supported. I mean, it was always well supported from the time I was diagnosed, but, but I can feel that support and lean on it that much more. And part of it is, is making that transition to being more vulnerable and accepting the diagnosis for what it is. And not lying down under it either, but, you know, accepting that there's certain things about it that I can't control. Yeah. Um, I've some So you're, you're, it's a, a medication you're, you're on, on an ongoing Me- basis? Medication right? is, a, is a huge help, you know, leave it open, medica- it's synthetic dopamine. But also lifestyle issues are really important. You know, physical activity, and I still run a bit, albeit a good bit slower than I used to. But you used to be a top top runner, like you you you, well, you ran I, for the country. I, there ran, for a while. I ran at a high level back in the back in the day, um, so I was able to suppose to lean into that as well. You know what I mean? I, and, and even the discipline of running over many years helped helped me and continues to help me because I mean I run very slowly now, but I, I actually don't I don't care. I don't mind once I'm still mo- moving. And other things like rest and managing stress and diet. So there's, there's certain elements of lifestyle that, that with Parkinson's work really well as well. Yeah, so it's, it's... Do you feel you're managing it really well? Yeah, there's, I am. I feel I'm managing it really well. But the caveat to that is that I reserve the right <laughs> for, that, for that to go pear-shaped tomorrow. Do you know yeah. what I, mean? I I can't say, I mean, I'm quite good today, but I, I don't know what trajectory the disease will take. Right, right. But that's maybe the other message from this is like none of us know really with or without Parkinson's. You know what I mean? Every day someone we know is diagnosed with something, you know, so that that notion of being in control or having control over your fate, that, that's been a real eye opener for me as well. Do you know what I mean? And relinquishing that control is actually quite liberating. Right. You know, I mean, I, I was a... F- acceptance. Partly acceptance, but I, I was early mid forties thinking I could control everything and that I was going to, I had my life mapped out. I was going to retire at 60 something and cycle and do all these things. And then I was diagnosed with Parkinson's and I realized actually I, I can't control these things. Yeah. But, but, but I, th- I think for men that, that effort of trying to be in control all the time can be exhausting. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely. And I, 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 sometimes I look at men in really powerful positions in industry and I, and I kind of feel sorry for them because I can see their struggles to live up to this kind of facade of, of being the top guy in whatever it is they're doing. Having all the answers. Yeah. So by, by being forced to face something like Parkinson's head on, you, you, you arrive at a certain level of acceptance uh, and that's actually very liberating and that enables you to enjoy the really important things. I mentioned that Ray Darcy show about Robin Williams' quote from Goodwill Hunting, you know, that the bad stuff wakes you up to the good stuff you weren't paying attention to. And that's been really insightful for me, I think. And I think I'm more tuned in now to things that really matter than I was 10 years ago. Right, that's a great message. And you seem to have kind of leaned into the self-compassion in the transition around the di- diagnosis. Oh, yeah, like it's, I mean, it's not my fault. Yeah. You know? 
Of course it's not your fault. No, and uh, I remember when I was diagnosed first in college in Carlo, I, I used to run, run around the place because my walking was impaired, and I, but I was too embarrassed. Oh, right. I, the, the action of, this might sound strange, but the action of running was easier than than walking. I was walking with a kind of a limp. Yes. So uh, people were saying, God, he's in, a, <laughs> he's in a mad rush this, this last year. But it was it was really embarrassment in, in kind of facing up to the disease. So you've experienced all those things that were kind of acknowledging with the men when we were given the message. Yeah, but but my my key message in all this, if, if there is one, is I'm not anyone to lecture anybody else because everyone's story is different as well. And I think I've been managing really well, as I said. But I I don't know if I'm going to be what I'm going to be like in six months or two years. So there's a huge uncertainty to this as well. But all I can do is draw on whatever resources I can at any given stage of it and do the best I can. And so far, that's been working out really well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been really working out really well for for us as well. The the, the work you're you're Thanks, you're continuing to produce and the partnership work that you're supporting. You mentioned the the to go to go back into the nitty gritty of the work as we kind of wind this up. But like, there's so many partners. You know, I I, I see you kind of as a you know, nearly a conductor of, of partners in, in some ways, especially in the, like going back to the agri-sector work, you know, Chagask and the Department of Agriculture, but business sector came into some of those partnerships as well. That was new. Yeah, Dlambia, for example, supported the Farmers of Arts Cardiovascular Health Programme. So in that programme we had, the HSC, we had a academic, two academic institutions, we had Chagask and Dlambia. So... I think partnership working is really where it's at. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, it, and it does. But you're, you're right to flag that it's not. It's, well, it's not, not the, easy. It's not the easy way. Every organisation brings its own yeah. expectations and value based and any piece of work. But th- that that is over the years. I think we've we've managed to improve our and refine our approaches to doing that, and really hammering out at, at the outset what it is we're doing and what everyone's role is, what the final outputs will be. So once you think you get clarity about what the role of every partner is and what the expectations are. Mutual understanding of where yeah. we're at after here. And so the more you invest in that at the outset, the better, I think. Very good. Okay, that's some good partnership tips to finish up on. Noel, I want to really thank you for taking the time to talk to us again. And I hope to have you back to talk about some of the other things as we, as we go ahead in the, the next Healthy Ireland Men Plan. Thanks very much. Thanks, Virgil. Thanks for all your support over the years as well. If you'd like to find out more about any of the work that was mentioned there, you can go to the Men's Health Forum in Ireland website at mhfi.org or the Men's Development Network website, or you can follow us on our HSE Health and Wellbeing YouTube channel and Twitter page. Thanks for listening. <laughs>